Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 16th, 2020, also known as COVID Quarantine Week 9. I'm Charles Hain. I am here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And I am here with writer for No Film School, Michelle De La Tour. Greetings, everyone. This week, we're going to be talking about an artificially created artist signing with Creative Artists Agency. We're going to be talking about Quibi, its massive disasters, and the one little diamond in the rough. We're going to be talking about the all-new Aperture 600D, a really amazing LED from Aperture that I'm excited to play with. We're going to be doing all that and deep cuts this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our first story this week, little Michaela, who is a completely artificial human being, not even human being, an artificial creature, a digital, a synthespian, if you will, which is the term I used when I wrote a paper about this in 2003 in my grad school film studies class. So this sort of like AI art collective group called Brood, B-R-U-D, created Lil Michaela, and she is a uh, half-Brazilian musician, performer, entirely digitally created, entirely like synthetic, but was originally signed with William Morris Endeavor, just left William Morris Endeavor <laughs> for Creative Artists Agency. We are reporting on it exactly as if it, we were report. I mean, it's our beat as we talk about all of the things that make us filmmakers and what are the things we're going to do in this new arena that like, what are we going to spend the next year doing when we're not allowed to like get on film sets with 20 people, big productions are going to return, but little productions that can't afford to quarantine everybody and put everybody in rooms and can't afford all the PPE. Like it's going to be a while before we can do those safely. And like, it's a lot safer to cast little Michaela than it is to cast a human being. But you guys can't afford her, by the way. She was built four years. She joined Instagram four years ago. She's now got 2.2 million followers. Like, the technology is advancing so quickly that if she was hard to make four years ago, she's probably much easier to make now. So if you wanted to devote yourself to it, you could probably dig into learning how to create your own little Michaela. I didn't write a paper on it, but I always thought what we were more likely to get would be you know, what started with Fred Astaire dancing with the vacuum cleaner or John Wayne selling Coors or whatever beer he was selling. I thought, and then there was the Superman movie where they reconstructed Brando to do some dialogue. And then we got some, you know, Star Wars people uh, like Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher. I always thought that's where we were headed in this realm, where we were going to get the old stars as as like cg ip but this having a new one who's a social media influencer is just so weird for me it, it always seemed like this the old stars were going to be a dead end because there's always someone who can sue you over it or there's always a legal battle you can have or there's always someone you have to pay whereas the ultimate dream i think for you know many studios and many creators is just like ultimate control right it's the ability yeah, to say yeah, like yeah. you know Nobody but me can decide what movies you're going to be in, when you're going to sing that song, where your hologram is going to appear. But you're being so – see, I think there – I agree with your the principle, but I think you're assigning a degree of um, willingness to risk creating a new thing like that to a, to a business or a, a part <laughs> yeah. of the business that would so much rather – have the thing that people are is just like okay if i have to pay one grandkid of 
famous person X. That's so much better than me having to deal with creating Michaela from scratch and failing. Like they always want the thing that's established. You know what I mean? But I agree with you. It would be much smarter to think in terms of let's create a hundred versions of Michaela at Warner Brothers and see which one is a hit, you know, like, <laughs> and that's the one. I forgot about how everything in Hollywood is about mitigating risk and they will totally pay money to mitigate risk. And one way you mitigate risk is you say, okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to use the, uh, the people who already exist. We're going to go to people who are already famous and we're going to mm-hmm. find ways to iterate with the people who are already famous. You are totally correct. It's also interesting that it's about, you know, it's, it's about trying, you know, she's a true transmedia star. She's monetizing the audience she has built. So she's going to be, you know, it's not just about putting her in movies. It's also going to be, you know, doing SpawnCon where she's pretending. But like, is she going to do Fit Tea SpawnCon where she's like pretending to drink Fit Tea? Because like, she doesn't drink tea. She doesn't consume any goods. Yeah, there's so many things that I, there's so many questions I have. How does she, obviously she can like, promote anything but who does her voice is there a person involved on any level is there a mocap person somewhere involved that was my question because she's done interviews with magazines and i don't how does that work i would hope it's an algorithm and it's not actually like a, a single person oh, it's alexa <laughs> but yeah it's... i would hope it's some kind of weird algorithm man did westworld teach us nothing algorithms and ai these are bad things. Hosts <laughs> with personalities taking over uh, the world. Did Westworld just nothing? Gets stranger by the day, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like a script written by a writer signed to CAA, not that the person would be signed to CAA. Well, it was a script called Sim One, right? Yes, Simone. Sim One. You know, there's, you know, in the trope of this, in the screenplay version of this, she develops some sort of will of her own and doesn't right. want to do things anymore right. or like doesn't like just want to give all the money to like there's like it goes rogue but um i'm really fascinated just to see what because that's not gonna happen <laughs> i don't think in this version Although, i'm not gonna I'm, I'm going out of the prediction business in general in 2020 but still i just how does this how does this play out and i agree charles the angle the the no film school angle in my mind is, does this mean you can invest in creating a narrative around something like this without creating a movie per se, like creating a fictional being and can you sell that being and then sell their story? And I think it opens up platforms and creative possibilities for sure. Not just, you know, writing the movie about the thing. Please don't do that. Like the Sim 1. But <laughs> right, like creating a thing on these platforms that has its own narrative. As a human being, you have a right to your likeness, right? But you don't... Does she have a right to her likeness? I think Brood has a right to a likeness, which is where, you know, the conflict will eventually arise in Act 2. Which is- if I go create a digital creature that looks vaguely like little Michaela, does that make it little Michaela? Because little Michaela is just a digital creature. Somewhere, <laughs> an IP that. lawyer is having a really good time. I think we should, I really want to move on to a subject that doesn't fill me with existential dread. <laughs> I just have stupid logistical questions like who signed the contract and does she have an autograph? So we can, we should move on. Those are really good questions, but yeah. you can do all of that 
through like, uh, yeah, those are good questions. I don't think anyone put pen to paper, literally. All right. In our next story, which will not fill you with dread, Quibi has been having a few struggles and stumbles. So if you don't remember Quibi, Quibi, we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast in the last couple of weeks. We've run a, a few stories on it uh, in No Film School. There was a story I was actually about to write about mastering for Quibi, like mastering for both for vertical and horizontal formats. And then Quibi is sort of flopped so hard that I'm not even sure that, you know, when I was like doing the research and writing it and seeing how it was, I was like, ooh, this is going to be a big hit because everybody's going to want to know how to master for these new formats. And then, then I don't know that... I don't know that a lot of people are going to want to master for both vertical and horizontal. So Quibi, uh, you know, financed by billionaires, Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, uh, co-chaired. They raised tons of money and their idea being quick bites of content, 10 minute or less episodes that you could view in either vertical or horizontal formats on your phone. It's called turnstile and you can like turn it back and forth to see it switch live. And um, it rolled out in COVID week three. We're here at COVID week nine, so it's been out about six weeks. It's flopped terrifically. And the real way it's flopped, more than any of the numbers, because I don't know how many numbers that are out yet, is that none of it has hit the zeitgeist. I have not seen a single meme that references a Quibi show. I haven't seen a single, like, I haven't had a single conversation with anyone where Quibi is mentioned. Like, there hasn't been, you know, think about the number of media waves and conversations about media you have in, like, your normal day-to-day life, especially if you're a movie person. Like, how many Tiger King memes have you seen? I think we talked about this at some point with when we were talking about Quibi, but it just, it, it, we, were th- we were saying, hey, you know what? It hasn't broken through at all. And here we are, like, this many weeks deep, and it still hasn't broken through. But yeah, I see promoted stuff for it on social media, but I see nothing about it from just folks. So the two things we're going to talk about this week, uh, one... The, the, the second thing we're going to talk about is apparently Katzenberg has come out with some comments and, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to make this work. And uh, we'll talk about that second. The first thing we're going to talk about is in order to prepare for this, I did what we call like a deep dive, you know, in the, uh, in the business parlance. Let's do a deep dive on something. I did a deep dive and I'm trying to find anything I would enjoy on Quibi. Like I just watched a bunch of stuff and I found one thing. I don't smoke the marijuana. I have smoked <laughs> the marijuana. I do not rig. I, have, yeah, I haven't smoked the marijuana since... George W. Bush was president. and But there's a show called Let's Roll with Tony Greenhand where Tony Greenhand makes elaborate marijuana cigarettes. Joints, if you will. And they are... <laughs> he makes a pizza joint for Hannibal Buress. He makes like other elaborate, specific art pieces that you can smoke. And you enjoyed... This was, you th- this was a solid... I mean, first off, like, he got famous off Instagram because he has a personality and he would, like, make these elaborate joints on Instagram. So it's, like, the perfect modern story of, like, I'm just going to do this thing I love well and I'm going to share it with the world and I'm going to find people from it. So he did that. And then they found him for this show and then they made the show and it's, like, it's genuinely enjoyable to watch the joy he brings Hannibal Buress when Hannibal Buress gets to smoke a Chicago deep dish pizza joint. Here's my here's my take on Quibi based on that. I think they tried to go too big too fast. I think that what Quibi wanted to do is Quibi wanted to walk in with like a thunderous amount of content. And I think, I don't know that that's how you build a network. You know, Disney had its back catalog, but it was all stuff we already knew and loved. And they only rolled out like five or eight new things. These things always launch, these things meaning these platforms with a flagship. And I don't know what Quibi's was or is. 
So if I don't even know what it is, then maybe it doesn't exist. But having that flagship series with some history, like even if it's reruns of something people love, like The Office or Friends or whatever, seems important to me and they don't have that. But the other thing with Disney is Disney is a brand that people feel compelled to be connected to no matter what. They offered the flagship show, The Mandalorian, but a lot of people would have just been like, well, it's Disney. Like, I've got kids, you know? I think there's a contract somewhere when, when they, that if you have kids, you have to own all Disney products. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by the why of Quibi. I don't know that it really... Fil- so I can imagine how it's pitched as like, it's got Whitman, Katzenberg... And it's quick content, which the kids love, you know, <laughs> like, but like, right. look at Snapchat. But so a lot of people invested in this, but it's not filling a need, right? In terms of the content landscape, like you can, and, and so I've never been surprised through this narrative by its lack of traction. And sometimes I wonder if this was not a con, but they, it almost feels like, like, like so the New York Times piece about mm-hmm. Katzenberg saying that this it hasn't worked and blames the pandemic COVID-19 is also strange to me because the pandemic is great for content on your phone and right. computer. Like that's the best like everybody who's like Netflix is enjoying Netflix is doing really well right now though. Everybody knows that much. And streaming content in general is getting a lot of attention. And screen time numbers are through the roof. And people are just enjoying content digitally a lot right now. So I'm sorry, I just don't buy that the pandemic is the why here. I'm more curious about the why, like, why was it necessary? I mean, I, I think the goal is to do a new thing. And I think that's a noble goal. Like, I respect the fact that they were like, well, what if there is another thing? Like, what if there is a way to do this other thing where, like, Ron Funches gets a talk show? Or no, he has a game show. I don't think it's out yet. But, like, I love Ron Funches. I want to run Funches' game show to exist. But, like, you know, what if there was a way where, like, smaller things could find an audience? Yeah. And I think the thinking was, well, we all have our phones. But for the most part, I've never watched... I think maybe five times in my entire life I've opened like the Netflix or HBO go app on my phone because I was like, okay, well I have an hour to kill and I'm locked in this room and I'm not allowed out of this room for whatever reason. And so I guess I'll watch last week tonight on my phone. Like usually I feel like the biggest thing they did is they neglected exactly what you talked about, which is the flagship. You need, you need that one thing that you put all your marketing money into, which Apple did with the morning show where Apple was like, this is going to be the thing that's going to make you, we're going to have Steve Carell, we're going to have Jennifer Aniston, it's going to be plucked from the headlines, and we're going to make you do it. Now, weirdly, or not weirdly, because no one is ever right about anything, uh, the thing that, the the hit from Apple was actually Dickinson, because that show people actually really dug and liked and connected with and told each other about. But Apple still had a show that, like, 
would come up anecdotally in conversation. Like people would still talk about it. People would be like, oh, have you seen this? And I feel like Katzenberg, based on his studio experience, probably knows this. But but yet he made the decision to, you know what, I'm going to spread a really wide net as opposed to saying, all right, let's try and find three or four things and see if one of them might be a hit. Because I mean, that's what Netflix did. Netflix's first original House of Cards was incredibly safe. It was Fincher. It was Bo Willeman. And Bo Willeman, granted, wasn't famous at that point, but had still done House of uh, Ides of March, which was great. And they built it. They built for it was it was IP that existed that they knew was solid. There are two reasons why I think Quibi isn't doing well, and I finally get to do my line, which is folks are saying Quibi to Quibi. I'm so glad I get to finally put that. <laughs> oh, in the that's yes. the reason why you wanted to talk about that this week. Yeah, totally. There's two. I think there are two reasons adding to its lack of interest <laughs> for a few people. One is there's no easy way to share stuff from Quibi, right? So if I really like a show, which I can't say that I did, but let's pretend that I really wanted to share something from Chrissy's court, I have to tell <laughs> someone to go download Quibi and then watch it. There's like four steps there, right? Where if you're watching something on Netflix or you're watching, which you can say, you can share in a web browser, you can just share a description. It's just there's 12 steps, or I said four earlier, but there's like 12 steps to trying to get to a Quibi show. And by the time you got there, you've wasted the 10 minutes to go watch the 10 minutes of content. And so I think it's hard to share. That's part one. And the other part is it's not free or it is for 90 days. And even with the free for 90 days, people didn't go after it. But I think yeah. it's because there's a price tag on it. When you're on Apple or on your iPhone and you go get an app and you have to put in your yeah. Apple ID and your credit card just to download something for free, people don't do it. And so that's I think that's what happened partially here is you had to put in your payment information just to get to Quibi. But too, I think that people right now are trying not to, you know, are cutting costs. And so if you're in a, a position where you're looking at your monthly expenses and you're saying, what can I afford and what can I not afford? These are the kind of things that people don't afford anymore. Like they aren't going to pay for Quibi. And so they probably didn't sign up because they knew that they would forget about it. So there's two, I think those are the two things for me that caused it to fail. I also think there was a market for it, maybe, if you were interested, if you had an idea for something that could have been maybe a YouTube series, right? But it is more secure on something like Quibi because you don't have to worry about advertisements or clicks or income coming from a video. You are on Quibi, so everything is kind of all secure for you and great. So there is kind of a market for that, I think I figured something out, and maybe this is, I'm stating the obvious and I'm just slow, but Michelle, your description, when you laid it all out there, I realized like what it is for me, what I think it really is. Quibi isn't just the launch of a new streaming platform. It's like the launch, it's the launch of an app. It's the launch of a whole thing. So it's not just saying like, like, like a Disney plus is just, is like a new channel that we all have these platforms, you know, like we're like, oh, okay, I got my Hulus and I got my Netflixes and whatever. But Quibi is like, we're launching a format. We're launching shows. We're launching an app. <laughs> and, and it's all one new risk. Like there's no part of this that feels familiar. Like you're going to be watching different kinds of shows and you're going to be watching them on a brand new place on your phone. And you're going to be, and it's a funny name and a new thing. So like with Disney, it's like, well, well, it's a new this, 
but it's Disney, which is familiar. And it's still mm-hmm. just like every other streaming channel. And when it's Apple, it's like, well, it's Apple's streaming service, but Apple, Apple's all over my life and everywhere. And I know Apple. So like, I think what, what clicks for me there were like YouTube. Well, YouTube is a familiar platform. I've used it a million times. If they're saying, here's a new version of it or a paid whatever. But this, the risk of saying the whole thing is brand new. You have to buy into this whole thing. And I feel, I feel like that's the big ask. Does that sound right? I, I agree with that, especially because I think it goes back to an insight. I remember reading an interview once where apparently Steve Jobs said that there was only one real brand in Hollywood and that was Disney. And then when they made Pixar, he felt like they had successfully created a second brand. But like, Aside and they sold film, it to Disney. <laughs> they sold it to Disney. Like film nerds know that like Universal was always like horror and genre and whatever, but like my parents don't associate Universal with horror and genre. Like like the studios don't really mean anything outside of Los Angeles. And but we are in a place now where there are a couple brands like Disney. We associate with quality children's work and nature documentaries. We know what kind of quality they bring. Pixar is the same way. I know exactly what kind of quality they bring. So I'm willing to pay a subscription fee for that channel. Netflix has created a brand for itself, right? It does these thriller shows well, Ozark and, you know, and it does animated comedy well, like Bojack. And like, I, I kind of know what I'm going to get out of it. I have a sense of the quality it's going to bring. I have a sense of what it's offering. The offerings are so scattered in Quibi. It's such a shotgun approach that I don't really have any engagement with it. And then I, the one thing I will say, we, we sort of made fun of Katzenberg earlier because he was saying, well, quit the, the pandemic is the reason people weren't willing to subscribe. But I do think that Michelle, you hit on a thing, which is like, it's cheap, but the pandemic is not a time where anyone is willing to commit to adding new expenses to their life. Right. And this is, and, and so it's like, I'm not willing right now where I don't know future income money. I don't know that I'm necessarily willing to like commit to paying more money on new things. Like now feels like a time to cut back on a couple of subscriptions. And I feel like the thing would have been, I mean, I feel like Netflix's strategy of like, let's see if we can't have a show that's a hit. And once, because people forget that house of cards was actually the second Netflix original. The first Netflix original was a little show called Lilyhammer that I've never seen. Um, it just didn't click. And then Netflix tried again, and then House of Cards was solid, and then they expanded out from there. They might have expanded too big. Not my place to say right now, but like Quibi was like, we're gonna try a billion things to have a hit. And I'm like, well, I don't I don't I don't know that you I don't know, that seems like you really overextend yourself in that scenario and you end up with like nothing, no Mandalorian. It feels to me like, again, I just keep coming back to this now, they weren't just launching new shows or a new channel. They were launching a whole new thing, like a new brand, a new everything. And that's just a lot for people to buy into at any point, which is why reincorporating something we were talking about in the first segment, there's a reason Hollywood likes to play it safe. Like It's hard to get people in mass on board with something new. They want familiar, um, familiar, but slightly different. And the one brand in Hollywood thing is just a great uh, little nugget because for film buffs and cinephiles, we know that the history of Hollywood and the studio system was, yes, there was a real strong brand to a studio and it's what drove a lot of the revenue and the decision-making for audiences that has more or less vanished. Um, But it's interesting thinking about how streaming giants may reintroduce some of that in their 
relationship to audiences because wouldn't you say you know netflix has a big cast a wide net but wouldn't you say you know hbo and they're gonna have hbo max soon by the way wouldn't you say they have a pretty strong this is what i'm gonna get from hbo and you know amazon i don't i don't know They, they should it seems like they should have a brand though one of the things that Quibi could have had going for it, I realize now in COVID-19, is there will be a time, I assume, in the middle of this where Netflix and Hulu and Disney, and except for Disney, Disney can pull from the vault, literally and figuratively. They might, is there a time where we run out of content? Like, is there a time where suddenly, you know, all the stuff that folks had that they were going to release isn't done or isn't filmed yet? And I wonder if Quibi could have, it's going to your phone. So I wonder if there was an opportunity to have folks film their, film themselves with the phone and, and edit stuff and push it out that way. Like a Quibi could have been a location for cell phone filmed content because it was going to go to your phone. <laughs> so technically not to your big screen. So maybe there was a, there was a home for it, but is there a world in which I don't know when we run out. When do we run out? That's my hypothetical question. When do we run out of content? Interestingly, on that note, I don't know that we had a story about this on No Film School, but um, it's something I saw buzzing around today is that Disney has moved up the release. They filmed a live action Hamilton. They were originally going to release it theatrically, and then it was going to come to Disney Plus in October of 21, which is like planning far out. And now it's going to be July 3rd of 21. So they're the vault is already starting to feel thin enough to Disney that they're like, you know, we should move this thing up that could get us theatrical revenue in the summer of 21, but we've got it ready. It's ready to go. Let's keep Disney plus full of new things so that people don't cancel their subscriptions. Cause I'm sure someone has done the math at one of these things of like, how recently do you have to have watched something on a platform before you cancel? Cause every once in a while I'll think, should I cancel X? Like, never Netflix. I watch Netflix regularly. But, like, Hulu. Every two or three months, I'll be like, should I go ahead and cancel Hulu? And I'll try and think about, like, what's the last thing I watched on Hulu? Killing Eve just saved Hulu for me. Like, Killing Eve was enough to keep me from canceling Hulu for another two or three months. I feel like Hulu is forever the bubble service, isn't it? It's the one where everybody... <laughs> it's, like, the one where everybody's like, do I still pay for Hulu? Why do I pay for Hulu? Oh, there is that one thing. My answer seems to be I need to have watched something in the last two months to prevent me from canceling the subscription. And I feel like people have probably done math on this, like business people, because business people are like this, where they can tell like how long is the average time without watching anything before people cancel. And so if you're Disney Plus, you know that number whatever that like R cancel number is and you're trying to figure out what is the R cancel and you're like, okay, well we need to make sure at least, you know, we're not going to have Mandalorian for a while. What's the next new thing we can drop? Cause our, the rest of our pipeline is all going to be stopped. And you know, they just put it, you know, I'm in the Disney plus app on the regular, I got a kid and they just put up the like stars singing along the Disney songs at home on zoom thing but like i tell you what that's not going to keep me subscribed like i didn't you know like that's not like but hamilton i'm like oh yeah hamilton okay but i think it does indicate that content be getting thin like people are looking in their vaults and they're like oh what am i gonna have to move up to try and keep filling the content pipe i think you're right michelle some things are in the can like so some seasons and some things, and I know having, you know, interviewed some guys in animation, like some, some animation, for example, almost everything moved remote 
um, on this on the No Film School podcast, not our show, but in an interview, I spoke to the guys from Rick and Morty and their new show, Solar Opposites. They were telling me that they were in production when the stay-at-home order came, so they had to move everything and everyone. But once they did that, it actually like became kind of easy. So they're like rolling. You know, and I think that so there's going to be stuff that continues to get churned out. We know like Mandalorian, which you brought up, season two is in the can. So post is being done, but that's something that can be remote. So I do think there's going to continue to be stuff. And I think we're going to see what kind of stuff that is change, like what's available to us. Um, and it'll, it, it'll be weird. But um, yeah, there, there, there could be a certain kind of content vacuum for sure. And that's. I think going to be interesting, actually. I have a pitch. All the TV networks, because TV networks are the bigger thing, because like, irreg- you know, all the big streamers have these irregular schedules, but like the TV networks that still shoot that very regular, like we're done shooting by April and then we pick up again in August and it's very like structured with pilot season and everything. They're all, there's no pilot season happening right now. None of them are going to be shooting the regular season of the show in August. I think starting September 1st, all of the networks and all of the cable networks should just start showing exactly what they showed in 1997. Like it should just be 1997 on television for a while. Whatever was showing September 1st, 1997 in ABC is what ABC shows. And then like we just run through the whole year, including the news. That's my pitch. Any networks want to hear me out. That's, that's what I'm going for. I just, you know, we can rewatch the Monica Lewinsky scandal happen in real time. We can, we can live through a more innocent era in which Boris Yeltsin was president. We can just do like of Russia, the the whole thing. I think that that's my pitch. Yeah, you're, this is an interesting idea. It reminds me of a book, a time travel book, where the method for getting people to travel through time was to just convince them with everything around them that they were in that time. <laughs> and I was thinking like, if every day we woke up and we just watched, now we're really off the rails, but and we were just watching 1997 TV, would we start to feel like, would it start to happen to us in a weird way? Would we start to become like 1997-ish? Would we pick up the the, the word, the, the way people were speaking and just, uh, it's a fascinating idea to just put us back in time for a while. Because I would turn on the TV. I don't turn on the regular network TV ever. But if I did, I would, I would t- yeah, I would totally be like, I'm really curious what 1998 is. I'm going to channel surf 1998 at this exact moment. That's a great idea. I love it. On to tech news. So companies are continuing to release products. And uh, last week we talked about the new MacBook Pro. We're going to have a hands-on review of that on No Film School this week. Uh, It's probably up by the time this episode is up. Um, That's an impressive little machine. This week we're actually going to be talking about a new light from Aperture. Aperture, if you don't know them, are like an indie-focused lighting company. They they have a lot of affordable units. You know, they have like a, a very popular unit of theirs is the 300 Daylight, the 300D, which is you know around a thousand dollars, and it's been a very popular unit because it's sort of like a lot of power for not much money that you can wall plug. You know, the 300D you can plug. You know, you can get away with plugging four of those easily maybe five into a single outlet and getting you know you're not quite getting a 2k worth of light but you're getting close to a 2k worth of light but you're able to plug in multiple units into a single outlet it's pretty wonderful they've now come out with the follow-up they're still making a 300d they're even making one that's bicolor now the 300x but they've now come out 
and it's official now. They leaked it a little bit last year at some trade shows, but now it's official and it's coming out and the full specs are out with the 600D. No price point yet, although I'm going to guess it's going to be $2,400. $2,499 is my guess. $1,799 if they're feeling really aggressive. And the 600D is twice as bright as the 300D. 300 doubles to become 600. Um, so it's a super bright LED. Uh, it's a roughly equivalent. It's not quite as bright as like a 1.2K HMI, but they say it's like approaching the brightness of a 1.2K HMI, which is a pretty bright unit. I mean, the 1.2K HMI is a workhorse of cinema. You see them everywhere. It's the light unit we're all really hoping that an LED is soon going to replace. LEDs obviously don't draw nearly as much power. If you're in an apartment, you know, and you have a 20 amp circuit, you're only going to be able to plug in one 1.2K HMI. With the Lightstorm 600D, you can plug in two units. So you can have a key and a fill or a backlight and a key. You can bounce one into the ceiling. Um, and then the other cool thing about the 600D, there's two more cool things about the 600D. One is that it uh, it can run off battery power. Now, it's a pretty powerful unit, so you would have to... There's The little ballast for the light has four battery spots. You'd have to put four AB mount or V mount batteries on it to power it to full power. Although, let's say you only had two powers, two lights two batteries, you could still get half power out of it. And that ballast can also work as a battery charger. So if you're not using the light and you need to charge batteries, you can charge the batteries with that ballast plugging into the wall. Sort of a nice double function. But the other thing that's cool about the light is Aperture is putting a real push into wireless light control. They're putting a lot of effort in that area. Wireless light control is one of those things that a lot of companies are like, yeah, we're sort of interested in this, but it's kind of a hassle. App development is sort of a different game than making lights. So a lot of companies have sort of fine apps. It's also really frustrating, I think, for a lot of companies because you're used to charging money for things. People will pay you $1,000 for a light, but no one wants to pay for an app. But you still have to make it. So it's like, oh, I have to hire developers. I have to hire a company. I have to work with them to do it. And then I have to give it to my customers for free. So it's not an area where a lot of people put a lot of focus, but it is an area that Aperture is putting a lot of focus into right now. They just did a big revision to their Cetus Link app, which is built on Bluetooth mesh technology, which means all the lights on your set talk to each other. And it uses class one Bluetooth, which means it works at like 300 feet. And I actually tested this back in January. I have a hallway where I teach that's 260 feet long. And I put a light at one end and I was at the other end with my phone and I could still control the light, even though it was too small for me to see with my bare eyes. That's crazy. Can, can you just talk to us a little bit about that functionality? Because to me, that's like just the crazy, like the mesh network. How, what's the responsiveness like at that distance? Like how reliable, do you feel like it's reliable enough that you take it to set and really put the light all the way out there and be manipulating it from your phone on Bluetooth network? So uh, one of the reasons why I test where I go to school, where I teach is not just because it's convenient, but also because it's a really busy RF interference area where I always have like, we got Wi-Fi units set everybody, everywhere has their phone out. Everybody's always doing Bluetoothy stuff. Like there's so much interference in that building. And you know, in that building and specifically, I've had issues with like, we did a, I did a review of a very cool tool that turns GPS into time code. And I had tons of problems testing it in my building because I couldn't get GPS signal anywhere. And I had to like take it to a window to get it, which is, you know, one of those things. And I talked to the creators of that and they were like, yeah, in some buildings, you're just going to have that problem. It's part of some buildings are busy. And that's definitely the building where I teach is very full of RF interference. Um, I was really reluctant when they first announced that it was going to be a Bluetooth protocol you know, I'll regularly have my Bluetooth earbuds in and I'll like leave the room and I'll go to a different room and the signal will cut out. And so I was like, really Bluetooth? 
you guys are going to go for Bluetooth. And I have a couple of other lights I control with Bluetooth. And the same thing will happen. I'll like be lighting. I'll set it up right. I'll put the phone in my pocket. And then as soon as I walk out of the room to go in another room, I'll get this little buzz that's like Bluetooth connection lost. And that's sort of my association with Bluetooth. Yeah. Or like, you know, if you have like, you're on a phone call and your car pulls up and suddenly the valet is listening to the other end of your call and you're like, hello, hello. And the other person, you know, <laughs> Bluetooth is weird. Like it, it pairs like at random times and sometimes you have to turn it off altogether. So yeah, I'm with you. That's why I'm sort of like, is this a reliable method? Well, so first off on the really big sets, people are still walking away from wireless as much as they can, right? Like I was talking to one of the people who's in the lighting team for John Wick 3, and they were like, yeah, I mean, technically we could have used wireless DMX on John Wick 3, but when you have, you know, that when they were doing that scene in that big glass, uh, the fight scene in the big glass, every side of the thing was glass, so it was all the trans light all the way around. You're not going to want to run that wireless because there's going to be too much interference and you're going to run into too many issues, and so you're always going to run that with controlled DMX cable just so you can control the lights from a distance but without interference. So I, I don't think you're going to see huge sets going to Bluetooth anytime soon. But what was interesting to me about this is I didn't know much about Bluetooth, really. Um, you know, I, I, I did know the sort of example people always give of like Wi-Fi is designed to replace Ethernet cables. So it's designed for like longer distances and more stability, but it requires a little more setup. You know, and we've all had that thing where it's like Wi-Fi requires a password or Wi-Fi some configuration or something like that, or you're trying to connect to a unit. Whereas Bluetooth was designed to replace USB. So it's designed to be as simple as plugging in a cable, which is why Bluetooth shows up for things like pairing with your car and pairing with your headphones and stuff like that. But I didn't realize until, because um, I never really researched Bluetooth until they came out with Cetus Link, that um, the Bluetooth also has something called class one Bluetooth. We usually use class two, like our headphones are class two. Most things are class two. Class one Bluetooth is designed for industrial uses up to 300 feet. Like that's what it's designed for. And like in my testing, you know, sixth floor of my building, 260 feet away, totally controlling the unit. It completely worked. Now, is that going to work through walls? I don't think it is. Like, I think that you're still, but because it's a mesh network, that's actually really interesting. So what a mesh network does is every item in the network is all talking to each other. So, you know, if you have a if you have a light and it's too far out and it's not talking to you, you can put a little like repeater halfway between you and the light and it will pass your signal along. So all you have to do is keep yourself within like 100 or 200 feet of any light in the setup. And then all the lights will talk to each other and pass the data and the signals along as you adjust your lights. And that's pretty cool. And then the big update they just did is a whole new iPad interface. You have sort of a, a whole console so that you can you know, look at the whole scene and, and sort of uh, group lights together and paint things on the lights. And it's clearly something they're putting a lot of energy in. And so far, I think that's really exciting. It's also really exciting that like, you know, with the new 600D, it supports Cetus Link, but it's also the first aperture light. It has native built-in wireless DMX, which is something you actually don't see. Usually you have to buy like an accessory with most lights to add wireless DMX. But this light just has wireless DMX built in. So if you're working on a wireless DMX shoot, it, you can just add it. You don't have to have, like plug in the accessory to the DMX receptacle. It just supports wireless DMX. So I think Aperture is trying to sort of future-proof this. And I think, I think they're going to try and make the play that Cetus Link becomes sort of an open format to work with a bunch of other lights. What I'm really hoping we'll see is by the end of the year, early next year, some other lighting companies be like, we're Cetus Link compatible. 
you can control your hive wasp with Cetuslink or something. Because then you're in a really cool situation where you're like, oh, I can start working with a wide variety of units. I can see that being so helpful for small crews. And rather than have someone fiddle with every single individual light and you're able to control it from a unit, that'd be amazing, particularly for student filmmakers or for the small one small crew models. Am I wrong about that? No, you're totally right. I mean, you know, Aperture, I think even came out with a sort of a, you know, we think about the classic interview setup as like the old area light case, right? You've got that gray area light case. You had three lights in it and three stands and you set up a three light thing for an interview. And that was a standard. And I think they came out with a case for three of their light units um, sort of mimic, not looking like the old area case, but sort of designed to replace that. And like, I could totally see a situation where you're like, okay, I've got three aperture units. I go, I set them all up, and then the person sits down. And once I see the person, I can sit right by my camera, and I don't have to walk to every light and adjust it. I'm just fiddling with knobs on my iPad app, sitting right by my camera. I was thinking about all of my old, like when you're. I think I feel like I'm thinking of student productions in particular for some reason, where where you are maybe the only person, or you and one other person, and you are going back and forth all the time where you have someone sit in, hopefully, fingers crossed, before you have someone like the talent sit in and then you adjust it. It just sounds so great. I'm just going to echo that sentiment. It's just like having done early on in my day, having done things like setting up an interview or like a two-person interview with the two cameras set up and just having to manually put the lights in every place and then adjust and then check both cameras and then go back and then adjust every light again. And then like, as if you're working alone or with like one other person having just sitting at your camera with an iPad or phone would be pretty, pretty awesome compared to the old way. Or honestly, if you're a YouTuber, you know, I mean, I, I've done a little exactly. bit of the old YouTubing and like I'm sit, and I'll frequently like I'll sit in my thing, I'll look at the little monitor of myself and then I'll go tweak a light and I'll come back and I'll go. And it'd be fun to have the iPad and just be like, all right, that's my key light and that's my backlight. And I can, you know, I'll, I regularly change the color of my backlight to match my shirt and, or to contrast against my shirt. And it's, it would be great to do that without walking away. So, yeah, it's a it's a cool thing that's coming with the 600D and the whole Cetus uh, thing that is all coming out. Up next, our final topic this week, deep cuts, where our three co-hosts each share with you something that we think you might not have seen, but is probably worth watching as we all face the possibility of there not being enough content to watch. We're all trying to help you solve that problem with deep cuts. So Michelle, do you want to kick us off? Sure, I can kick us off. So the film I'm recommending this week uh, I came to it because I found myself listening to Dan Romer's Maniac soundtrack the other day, and I was reminded of the first time that I had listened to Dan's work, which was his combined soundtrack with Ben Zeitlin, who did, and they both together did Beasts of the Southern Wild, which came out about seven or eight years ago. So it's not a deep, deep cut because it's still in this deck or still in post 2000. So I guess not deep, 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 deep cut or old, 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 old cut, but rather a recent cut. And I'm reminded of it. And I wanted to bring it up for a couple of reasons. One, I feel like this film was the film that if I wanted to make, when I wanted to make something, this would have been the film that I wanted to make in the sense that it had this really unique and beautiful aesthetic and really powerful kind of homegrown music that they also made. People made the film or making the soundtrack and score. And it had a small crew, a local crew, and and real, um, oh yeah, real hogs. That's one of my favorite parts. If you've seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, there are actual beasts and they're little pigs. 
It's a great behind-the-scenes segment of them. Uh, and But I like that that kind of the homegrown aesthetic of it. You know, they could have maybe vfx those in or they could have figured out something out. But they said, no, let's do what, what you know homegrown small crew filmmakers do, which is make this work with real animals and, and set it up that way. And it is... I, I, I've rewatched it on a number of, occasion, of occasions and I've listened to that soundtrack all the time. It's funny. I... I probably mentioned this before. I apologize if I have, but I had a short at a film festival a long time ago, and so did Ben Zeitlin in the same program. They were It was a weird program to have both of them because the one I had was a comedy, sci-fi, weird thing, um, dark comedy, and his was basically the precursor to Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, tonally and everything, and... Uh, it, I watched it many times in that shorts program because I was attending it every time. And it's just funny when I saw Beasts of the Southern Wild later, I was like, that's a lot like that short I saw like a hundred times at that film festival. And of course, there's a reason. Um, apologies if I've told that story before. Um, the uh, My deep cut is the movie I saw that made me realize that the part of filmmaking I wanted to explore more was producing. It's called The Kid Stays in the Picture, and it came out not that long ago. It's not a super deep cut. But if you aren't familiar with it, it's the story, it's the adaptation of the biography, of the autobiography of Robert Evans, who was like a legendary film producer and studio mogul in the 1970s. And it's a very classic rise and fall and rise again of someone into fame and drugs and etc. But it's a true story. He has one of the most incredible voices, like actual voices. And he captures a sort of an idea and a mythos of Hollywood and Hollywood's history. It's a it's real life, but it's also so much close to the fictions we concoct of Hollywood. Um, and he was a producer. And I just remember watching him and thinking like, oh, yeah, producing. That's a thing. That's a cool thing. But I remember sitting in the theater, uh, the Sunset Five, on, and uh, I, as the movie started and the first string started playing, I remember thinking, I'm going to sit closer to the screen because I think I'm going to love this movie. And I really did. It's a great movie. Actually, I got my DVD of it signed by him. He passed away not that long ago, but he was signing them at the Virgin Megastore, also in Hollywood. And he signed by him. So anyway, that's my deep cut. All right. And so my deep cut, I'm going to drop a deep cut of a television show. And I'm going to drop a television show from the 90s, but I missed it in the 90s. I didn't find out about it until like the mid-2000s. And it's a television show that is like the foundation of so much, like so many of the people we love were originally in this show. And yet it's never talked about. And people sort of ignore it and forget it's there. But it's online. You can find it streaming. It's a little show called Mr. Show with Bob and David. Oh, yeah. David Cross, Bob Odenkirk, if you're a fan of Better Call Saul. Or or, um, the uh, he played, you know... uh, Saul Goodman on uh, Breaking, Bad. Uh, Breaking Bad. And, you know, David Cross has been in many, many things, Arrested Development, so many other good things. Um, and it's just a great TV show. It is a sketch show from the mid-90s. If you watch it, you will literally be like, oh, and then that person's in that show I love, and that person's in that show I love, and that person used to buy weed from my neighbor. And like, I just have to say, Mr. Show is amazing. I worked 
on a couple things with Bob Odenkirk, and he was just a treasure trove of knowledge. And all those guys were such comedy nerds, like the Mr. Show guys. And there is so much you can get out of watching it that like informs who we know now, but just... I feel like if you love comedy and you want to do short comedy, that's the place to go. Like, go watch that show and it'll influence you. And there's just such good, basic, fundamental good comedy happening on that. It's the best. I love it. All right, everybody. That is the No Film School podcast for COVID Week 9. I'm Charles Hain. You can find me, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. And you can check out my web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv. It is coming soon to Amazon Prime. And it's also it's currently available on Vimeo, VOD, and Ficto. Nice. This is Michelle De La Tour. You can find me on the socials at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R on the Twitter and the Instagram. And we're thinking about you all. And we look forward to connecting soon. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find all the content we talked about and more on nofilmschool.com. Find us on Facebook. No Film School is the name of the Facebook page, crazily enough. Uh, at No Film School on Twitter. And uh, we have some cool stuff going up on this website and this podcast. I interviewed Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek The Next Generation, who's directed a ton of television and movies. Um, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with him as a director or an actor at all, listen to the podcast. He's a great storyteller. He's a really funny guy, but he really is like a craftsman as a director. And he's been at it for a long time. He's directed so many different shows and he has a lot of good insight into the process of directing actors and directing in general. Um, and it was a fun, it's a fun one. Um, plus we have all kinds of cool stuff up on the site. We're going to do coverage of NAB Express. So there's going to be some NAB type coverage coming at you this week. And thanks so much. Like, rate, and subscribe us.